Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you here on behalf of Unique London to the next Science Cafe. My name is Premisla Pella. I'm the director of the Czech Center in London. So as a brief introduction, the UNIC is an association of the European culture institutes and embassies in the UK. It is the main aim to promote European culture and foster mutual collaboration with UK partners. Recently, UNIC and its members have also expanded their programs into science and innovation, addressing topics of advanced technology, in particular, the artificial intelligence. As this is already our fourth edition of Science Cafe, we have covered topics of AI and ethical dimensions, impact on arts and future of mobility. So today, we have quite actual topic of cyber and personal security. So there is no surprise that during the pandemic, the usage of digital devices has increased exponentially, which in many cases also led to imminent threat to our own personal cybersecurity. So it's no secret that as many of us relinquish our digital privacy to social media companies, they do know us much better than even our close acquaintances or friends. So the questions are, is this an inevitable future? What are the alternatives and best approaches to write benefits of digital world and not become vulnerable to personal security risks? So these and other questions will be addressed and explored this evening. So I'm very pleased that we will do so with such a representative international panel of speakers from various professional backgrounds, from university experts to practitioners from the United Kingdom, Spain, Estonia, and the Czech Republic. So with that, I'm delighted to introduce the chair of the panel, distinguished experts in the field of AI, Joanne Bryson, who is currently Professor of Ethics and Technology at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Joanne has also a prolific track record on advising governments as well as corporations on AI policy. So before I turn the floor to Joanne, I would like to thank our partners, uh, namely the Estonian and the Spanish Embassy, Cervantes Institute, and certainly the Czech Center in London. So without any further ado, uh, John, the floor is yours, and I wish you to have an enjoyable and intellectually stimulating discussion. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me here. I really appreciate it. I, I'm actually an expert in artificial intelligence, and I don't mean by that, uh, you know, the kind of artificial intelligence where I'm seeking one magic algorithm that will solve all the problems. Rather, my, my PhD was actually in the systems engineering of AI and the use of AI within systems engineering. So um, I'm, I'm actually kind of unusual within artificial intelligence in that I, I get asked to do these cybersecurity things quite often because I've noticed that it matters. I've noticed that AI is a digital artifact and that you can't talk about trusting AI or, or in any way use, utilizing it if you don't have cybersecurity covered. Um, I really appreciate uh, that the, the UNIC has, has asked me to chair rather than actually talk about cybersecurity because I'm not the expert. So I am going to turn immediately uh, with that only that short introduction to our first speaker. So uh, Carolina Enga is uh, an independent diplomat cybersecurity and technology lead uh, and she explores diplomatic processes and cyberspace and technology issues. She's a former head of Estonian cybersecurity policy, which is so impressive. Uh, and she worked in the government CIO's office 
where she coordinated activities under the National Cyber Strategy and participated in the launch of numerous e-government initiatives, including data embassies and e-residency. She concentrated on ensuring that the e-government innovations are respectful of cybersecurity concerns without compromising the digital rights of users. So uh, with, with that, uh, Carolina, can I ask you to take the floor and tell us something about the role of government? Sure, thank you, Joanna. And firstly, I'd like to thank the Estonian Embassy in London for the invite and congratulate the Czech Centre for this um, excellent series of events. And as you have rightly identified, AI will have an effect on every aspect of our lives, uh, from security to the arts, from how we interact with the world to how governments work. And conversations like these are very timely to discuss how we can make the most of these opportunities while keeping our people and societies at large safe. And while AI has potential to enhance economic development and help solve some of the most pressing issues of our time, we are also seeing that AI can be applied to most pre-existing forms of state repression, from surveillance to censorship. And as the former US ambassador to the Human Rights Council, Eileen Donahoe, remarked recently, AI-enabled tools provide authoritarian states with a capacity to scale their repression and scan for content they don't like and, and suppress any views they don't like. And she said that beyond violating privacy and civil liberties, uh, these systems have the potential to destroy, in large parts, human agency and human dignity if put to use by these repressive regimes. And while authoritarian governments have grasped the potential of AI for repression and control, us in countries with democratic governments have been almost been caught off guard by this. And we don't have a compelling alternative vision of a digital society that reflects our shared democratic values, but still manages to take advantage of the promise of further digital development. Um, but let's focus in on today's theme of AI and cybersecurity. And as Joanna said, my work revolves around governments. I led Estonia's cybersecurity strategy, and I'm now working in the international system to look at the future of cyberspace. And governments, especially for us in Europe, will play two equally important roles, one of the regulator and one of the enabler. And as a regulator, governments have to set the rules on how we can use certain technologies, what is acceptable and what isn't, and how we can protect the free and open internet. But as an enabler, on the other hand, it has to create an ecosystem where the private sector can develop services and technologies to make us economically competitive while ensuring our rights as citizens. And on top of that, we shouldn't forget that often it is our own governments that are the first line of defense from many cyber attacks. We know how much data our governments hold on us and we need them to keep it safe for us. And as governments are developing tools using technologies powered by AI, we need governments to be deploying technology that counters that. So we need governments to be innovating just as fast as the private sector and just as fast as the cyber criminals out there. Uh, but like it's often the case, um, it's easier for many of us to say what we don't want from the future instead of setting a positive vision of where we want to go. And as a result, governments often find it a lot easier to regulate rather than to enable. But those sort of two roles the governments play have to be uh, in balance. And so when it comes to cybersecurity, and, and to be fair, development in almost any sector, 
the most important thing is to build resilient systems. This does not only apply in the technical layer, but the policy one as well. And technology will always develop faster than any government's ability to regulate it. And only through community engagement and principled value-driven leadership can we create frameworks where technology can thrive, but resiliency is retained. And to do this, systems need to be nimble and capable of responding to external threats in a way that does not cause an ex existential threat to the entire system if it is to be challenged. And I can certainly say that this is a principle we try to implement when developing e-governance in Estonia. And as arguably the most digitally advanced country in the world, um, our citizens have always expected that the government takes advantage of the most advanced technology out there. And this also means top cryptographic protocols, the best threat detection, a constant preparedness for advanced cyber attacks. But I would argue here that Estonia's success in the digital realm hasn't actually come from the technology we have used, but precisely from this re these regulatory frameworks that allow for a certain resiliency and flexibility, as well as experimentation with new technologies. And we have been capable to pull back on, on certain things when we see they don't work and at the same time deploy technologies to see if we can, if we can use them to, to enhance governance for our people. And I think this is where we have to focus on when looking at the future where we're powered by AI technology is moving so much faster than policymakers can contend with, that we have to allow for flexibility and experimentation but build it on a framework of strong values and principles. And only like that can we safely deploy AI systems um, that are still economically competitive. Um, thank you, I'll stop great. here. Fantastic, thank you so much. And thank you for keeping to time. That was great. Okay, so fantastic. So the second speaker, I got everybody's name right in, in practice. I wanna make sure I do it on the, on the actual thing. Luis, uh, uh, Luis Espinosa Ankel uh, is actually a uh, lecturer, which if you're not fluent in British English means an assistant professor at uh, the University of Cardiff, um, where he's in the uh, informatics and computer science department. And he has actually also had, this is again, a great honor if you're not fluent in American English, he, he's a, he's a um, sorry, what is it called? A, uh, I'm sorry, I'm Fulbright. Yes, both Fulbright and Erasmus Mundus, uh, fantastic. Um, he's been very successful with, with fundraising. He works for corporations as well in, as in research. He's a very accomplished publisher. And uh, his focus though is mostly on uh, natural language processing, computational semantic, semantics and uh, meaning representation. So I'm looking forward to hearing what his pitch is here to us in cybersecurity. Um, thanks, Joanna. Um, thanks, everybody, uh, for for having me. And well, let me uh, let me join my colleagues to um, yeah to thank the the organizing institutions, uh, the Embassy of Spain and the Embassy of uh, Estonia in, in in London. And and yeah, um, well, my the few points I I want. I have uh, well, uh, thought about uh, raising today, uh, right in this panel, um, as uh, Joanna mentioned, right, uh, my, my, um, my profile is mostly on, on uh, the application of AI to a very particular um, domain, which is natural language processing, uh, which is uh, the branch of AI that deals with human language. Um, uh, applications such as machine translation systems, 
uh, search engines, recommendation systems, or news aggregators. Uh, all of them are built on top of, of NLP uh, technologies. Um, and I am, well, uh, uh, exposed uh, regularly to, to, to these types of, of technologies. And as we go on uh, in, our, in our work towards making uh, well, uh, intelligent systems to match as much as possible the, the, um, the capabilities of humans, um, then we start encountering um, um, well, issues and aspects that we have to reflect on from the, from the cyber and the, from the per uh, mostly personal security concerns, and I will specifically focus on one item for discussion, which is information, access to information, quality of information, and what role does AI play in this? Again, you will hear this from the point of view of someone dealing with text data, uh, from uh, building computational systems uh, that deal with text data. So um, I, I thought about uh, breaking it down in uh, two uh, assets or two areas where AI protects us uh, from for uh, information access and two areas where AI can actually constitute a threat uh, in the sense of uh, in the area or in the realm of accessing relevant information, accessing timely information, uh, etc. Um, so a couple of things uh, about uh, where AI can uh, play a threatening role in um, uh, sorry, a protective role in, um, in information access. Um, well, uh, obviously, uh, as we know, uh, our uh, online activity uh, is, uh, as our, our online activity is very different from our physical uh, activity. And part of it is because we are exposed to a lot of information, many of which, uh, much of which is, is not necessarily relevant for our uh, Call them success criteria, right? So th those um, metrics that we have inside in our own uh, mechanisms to decide whether what we want to read, whether what we want to access, or the people we want to interact with, uh, whether this, you know, um, uh, that's something that's relevant for us at that particular point in time. So of course, AI can play a very important role here. Um, from filtering out offensive content in social media, uh, helping us scanning the web for uh, true information as opposed to um, untrue or partially true or unverified information and making sure that what we access uh, runs through these automatic filters um, and even uh, making our experience in social media uh, more vivid, uh, more lively and more human by uh, identifying uh, bots and automatic systems, which, uh, you know, uh, they float uh, in, in many cases, social networks. And I will say a couple of things about this on the, on the other side of the, from the other, other side of the, of the spectrum. Um, it's also important to uh, consider uh, this second point, I, I believe is very important uh, in terms of how can we leverage, how can we exploit our artificial intelligence technologies uh, when it comes to information from the point of view of simply enabling uh, information access. Um, you know, we are in a context uh, where we have uh, had uh, a lot of uh, dependency uh, to um, relevant, good, faithful, and technically accurate information to basically survive. And uh, it is not, uh, now it is not unusual to think of extreme cases, like for example, a, a, a global pandemic. Um, making sure that we are able to, to, to access um, effective communication from authorities, uh, 
or uh, that uh, you know preventive measures and technical information is is, is provided in a timely manner. Uh, that's always not easy, especially uh, not for communities that, that fall outside uh, communities uh, that speak the major languages or that live in uh, uh, developed countries. Um, so um, again, no, because of my clearly uh, biased point of view, I wanted to, to, to highlight a very um, 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 valuable contribution to this. Uh, from a lot of NGOs and organizations that actually work for uh, fostering multilingual communication in emergency situations. Of course, the COVID pandemic is the one that uh, will always come to mind, but uh, there are uh, also uh, a lot of success cases in, my, in making sure that uh, my, uh, migrants uh, have access to, to, to relevant and, and useful information. So here, AI plays an important role, and in fact, it is a research area in itself. At developing multilingual technologies for information accessing in emergency situations. Um, this being said, um, at, uh, on the other hand, we have a, a couple of uh, points that I just want to mention very briefly, so that we can also look at the bright side, or at the at the at the dark side of AI when it comes to to on, to uh, information access. Of course, online censorship. Um, so this is something that, of course, uh, will definitely come uh, again. So I will not spend too much time on it. Uh, I just want to uh, quote uh, the co-founder of FastAI, which is one of the great uh, best-known organizations in artificial intelligence. Um, quote, we have the technology to totally fill Twitter, email, and the web up with reasonable-sounding, context-appropriate prose, which would drown out all other speech and be impossible to filter. So as you can see, this is very different from the notion of censorship that we had a pre-internet era, right? And the mechanisms also to get to, 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 to address this are, of course, different, and this is where uh, well, uh, the, 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 the challenge uh, lies, because it's not uh, a clear cut. Uh, thing to do. And as I mentioned, uh, the final bit is um, the generation of uh, untrue and harmful content, fake news, bots that uh, flood social media, or conspiracy theories, which in fact happen to be content that recommender systems reward a lot, because uh, typically there's a lot of uh, of rewarding compulsive behaviors from large technological companies because this is the type of uh, user that uh, uh, engages, hyper engages with social content and in fact creates more revenue um, for them. So, um, well, uh, I'm going to leave it here. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, hopefully heated up discussion. Again, thank you for staying in time. I didn't even unmute myself yet, <laughs> so that's great. Uh, so uh, since we're now coming to the uh, fi final speaker, I wanted to remind people that there will be a Q&A section. Um, at, at this rate, I think we'll have about 10 minutes of discussion between the, um, the experts, uh, and then uh, you guys get to ask questions. But uh, unfortunately, you have to ask them through me. You have to trust me to read your stuff. And speaking of reading stuff, our, our, our next speaker is the only one it's really hard to Google. <laughs> so, uh, so like I guess he is uh, concerned with uh, cybersecurity. Uh, uh, Yoshi Berger, uh, I know what you work on, you're working on you know, ransomware and things, but the only reason I know 
Uh, we are back on this because of the bio you provided us with, uh, the, which is actually not that different from mine in that the, it's computer science, but also natural science and also music. Um, anyway, he is an officially appointed forensic expert in cybersecurity and the area of computer and communication technology. He serves as an expert assessor to the Court of Justice. I assume that's the European Court of Justice. And at the same time, he is an entrepreneur, founder, and investor of innovative and creative projects, a strong, successful track record. So I would uh, ask you now to speak, and, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Joanna, for introduction. And uh, thank organizers for invitation uh, to this great event to speak here. Uh, so at the beginning, let me ask the question. If you cross the bus, uh, most busy intersection in London, do you follow the rules and wait for the green light, or do you go straight even when the red light on pedestrian traffic light is on? Of course, you are waiting for the green, and it is not only because you follow the rules, but also because uh, because you are crossing uh, under uh, because crossing under the red lights is dangerous, and uh, in the real world, we all work in this way. Uh, uh, and it seems normal to us. It's nothing special. If we behave this way in the virtual world, more than half of cyber, in, uh, cyber crime incidents will disappear. Uh, and what is most important, behavior in the virtual world must be taken as seriously as uh, the real world, uh, because uh, because it is uh, the uh, the. Um, dangerous areas in the uh, virtual worlds are very similar to our uh, common living. And often all you have to do is think about what you are doing. It is, it is the main, uh, main rule. Uh, how the most uh, attacks works. Uh, they are basically trivial. Uh, an email uh, will arrive from, uh, arrive from uh, an unknown sender and the email appears to come from a trusted sender, but even with the simple verification, you can find uh, that the address uh, does not belong, belong to this trusted sender. So, so if you will be a little bit careful, uh, you, you, will be, you, you will be more than 50% success successful when you are when you are avoiding uh, cyber attacks and uh, in most cases they demand to uh, to pay a debt or uh, overdue uh, invoice but you you have nothing to do with the, the company uh, or you have to enter your login details uh, somewhere and the page uh, that opens has a completely different uh, address in the address bar uh, it just looks similar uh, but uh, it, it, it looks this very, very silly. Uh, but uh, uh, believe me, in most cases, uh, most cyber crime is made on these simple, uh, simple principles. <clears throat> believe me that uh, it's much more easy uh, to try to send spam to tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands email addresses and wait for someone to click then, then to break into complex corporate or banking system. Uh, if we were more careful, even the hack hackers uh, would not have enough motivation to use these simple attacks. And for more complex attacks, 
most of them uh, do not have uh, 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 sufficient uh, technical knowledge. So it is uh, it is question of thinking and to avoiding uh, the most simple tricks uh, to um, make uh, yourself uh, uh, safe from from cybercrime. Uh, basically, it is just a matter of uh, supply on demand. As long as users mindlessly click on the relatively stupid tricks, these tricks uh, will come to your in uh, to, to your email inboxes. Uh, if the hackers stop being su successful, they won't burn more energy to send more uh, because it won't pay off. Uh, it is uh, mainly about common sense and thinking about what I am clicking on. Uh, so any comments or questions uh, uh, are welcome and there will be uh, open uh, open uh, question a part of panel and now I would like to switch to practical uh, practical issue which I which I, which I was uh, helping with uh, and it was a ransomware uh, ransomware attack uh, so uh, uh, in practice, I dealt with several incidents where servers or computers in companies were infected with ransomware. Uh, and uh, one of them I will uh, describe in a uh, little bit anonymized uh, detail. Imagine a company that uh, manages servers and computers for more than 20 other companies. It is common, uh, in, common in, in current life. And the administrator from this company is so convenient that he secures the passwords for the remote access to the servers of the 20 of the another 20 companies with the same password that he uses for his computer this is uh, this violates uh, all security rules yes but it just happened it's it's uh, it's daily uh, almost daily happens uh, so ransomware got into uh, this uh, administrator's computer and immediately looked for ways to continue connecting. After a while, all 20 servers uh, he managed were fully encrypted and each with different encryption, uh, encryption key. It was quite, quite easy, quite simple. And, and on his screen was a request to send three Bitcoins to the crypto wallet for each server. Can you imagine how big amount of money it was? Yes, <laughs> you hear right, three Bitcoins for each server. Uh, one, of, uh, affective, uh, one of the affected companies uh, contacted uh, me and gave me the sample of data. Uh, since we had information that the encryption was very fast, we deducted that uh, uh, symmetric cipher, uh, cipher was used because, because um, the use of asymmetric uh, ciphers is very computationally uh, and time consuming. So we were a little lucky at the beginning. Uh, so then we started uh, looking for the encryption key and after a few hours, uh, we found it. And uh, at the same time, uh, we understood the principle of the attack and we were ready to help other 19 companies. But uh, we asked, for access to the server to verify that we could de decrypt uh, the other data as well. And when we logged in uh, there, we found, uh, we, we found out that uh, uh, there was a developer logged in uh, who had development tools installed there and was trying to compile an application that would uh, uh, decrypt the encrypted data. 
we sub sub subsequently learned from the administrator that he he had paid three bitcoins and received uh, uh, the decryption application, which didn't work. So he contact he contacted the attackers, the hackers, again, and they found they found out that the decryption application does not work on 64 bits windows and that uh, they uh, promised uh, to compile it directly on the server where the data is it's it's true so 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 the so the administrator uh, gave them access to the data server uh, really uh, i i couldn't uh, i couldn't believe because because uh, the hackers got the money and access to the server in a few hours. <clears throat> and still it didn't help uh, because, because they had uh, a bug uh, in the encryption program uh, that made it impossible to decrypt files right, larger than four gigabytes. So all smaller files were dec decrypted uh, by both our application and the application that was uh, eventually supplied by hackers but other data was lost due to programming error so so even Thank, thanks you for this uh uh yeah. case study that's really interesting and i'm glad that you've been able to help some of the people um but i think we should move on to the, okay. the discussion part if that's okay. okay all right so um again I, I haven't seen any questions yet so maybe i will come back and hear some more stories from you later but uh, the, but I will give you the, the panel. Uh, I've, I have a couple of questions. And if you don't like my questions, you can ask each other questions. <laughs> but uh, I, I, my questions are, um, I'm going to do one at really the drilling down at the local level um, about uh, you know, human dignity, uh, as was mentioned uh, earlier, and, and censorship, um, but also uh, personal security. So one of the things that's really horrified me in the domain of uh, privacy and cybersecurity is the extent to which people are, are marketing uh, tracking tools, supposedly so you can find your phone, but with a full knowledge that they're mostly used for uh, uh, basically abuse, domestic abuse for, for, for tracking uh, usually women, but not always, uh, and, and controlling their lives. Um, so I was wondering, uh, do any of you have any uh, you know, like on, on this kind of uh, critical levels of, of human dignity, do you, have, do you have any comments about what people can do about this? I mean, because this does seem like a regulatory problem too. How could these companies be allowed to use the still use uh, technology this way? I'm happy to kick off. Um, I think it, it's a it's a real issue. And, and one thing, you know, my work with independent diplomat now, we are seeing because we work with many marginalized communities across the world. And, and we are seeing that quite often when we, for example, help female representatives from those countries speak for their communities that they come from, the amount of online abuse and harassment and uh, that comes their way is, 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 is of a magnitude that, that, that's horrifying to anyone who, who cares about you know, human dignity as such. But the sort of tracking at, at apps specifically are a, are a huge problem. And, uh, but I, you know, with, with any sort of, technological issue like this, I would definitely um, verge on the side that sort of we have, need to find solutions to this within sort of, that this isn't a tech issue. This is an issue of people um, being abusive, of tracking people, of, of following them. This isn't a tech issue. This is a people issue. 
and that we need to find solutions to them. But, you know, outside of tech solutionism, there isn't a tech solution to that issue. People will find issues or find ways to be horrible to each other and use whatever medium is available to them. So I would sort of, from my sort of experience, you know, we need to stay away from seeing these things as, as too much of a tech issue and focus on the human aspect of it and treat it as sort of the, the crime that it would be no matter what medium was being used. That's great. Um, any other comments from the others? Um, I actually have. Uh, so I, 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 well, first of all, totally agree with Carolina I, I, in, in the sense that um, it, it's probably a good idea to not look at this or at least only from, from the point of view of this is a tech problem, um, uh, but rather it's a, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a phenomenon that's almost uh, unfortunately tied to, to human nature in the sense that um, uh, dual use of newly developed technologies and inventions is something that has been around for forever. Um, uh, I, I attended a, a talk uh, a couple of years ago, back in the day when we attended talks, and uh, the speaker actually gave the, and he was, the, the speaker was giving the, the, well, the presentation was about um, ethics in natural language processing. And th that had a strong ramification in, in personal security. And the example he gave um, was uh, the electric light, um, which was invented, uh, I, I took my notes, uh, uh, it, it was invented in 1879. Uh, 1879, right? The first London streets were lit in 1881, so that's two years later. And the first man was executed uh, to be executed with the electric chair was in 1890, only nine years after uh, the first London streets were lit. And you, you know, you, you you can imagine that that's not a, something that the the, the people behind um, you know the deployment of electricity at a large scale uh, that's probably not a use case that they had in mind. And to be honest, it's unlikely that um, tracking devices have, and, and the, the, the misuse of tracking devices or tracking technologies uh, that, you know, that those, that those misuses are in the, in the mind of the developers, the scientists, the research engineers that are taking that into, deploying that into the real world. So then another um, uh, issue that, um, uh, comes into place is recourse, uh, and that's where uh, those of you who are more uh, uh, engaging more with governments and accountability probably have a lot more to say. Um, but I like this idea of, uh, from the point of view of data science and machine learning, this uh, chain of responsibility, right? So when there's something going on, when an application, when a technology is used in an improper way, who is ultimately responsible for this? And are there regulations, for example, to uh, impose uh, a chain of responsibility to everybody involved in the development of that technology? And to what extent, for example, is the data scientist responsible for that? Because personally, uh, I believe that this would be something that would, uh, if uh, well uh, implemented, would probably prevent uh, many problems going forward. Okay, that, that's great. I, I'm going to uh, shift the question now since I still got two minutes left and my next question overlaps one of the questions. So people are starting to send me questions and, and we have three already. So uh, I'll try to be quick here. Uh, so I was kind of setting you guys up a little bit because this is one of the things that the social credit system is supposed to be watching out for. So when you have this very strongly surveilled state, then you can catch these kinds of social problems. Now we know that China also uh, deploys the social credit uh, system in ways that aren't part of the law uh, to, to do repression. 
but is there is there a point where you would uh, you think, well, hey, we could live in a better world? As many Chinese people think that they do, they live in a safer world as a consequence of the of their surveillance. Not not all, incidentally. I, mean, I know a lot of Chinese people hate global surveillance, but I'm just saying. Uh, I think that I, I, I would try a very short note. Uh, I think that first of all, we, we must choose between the right balance, uh, the, the right balance between safe, safety and the comfort. It is the main issue because uh, more comfort means uh, less safety. And of course, uh, under different regulations, we can regulate this area, but uh, it is a personal choice of each person uh, if you want to be more secured and you will not use comfortable applications, or if you want to use whole comfort of all uh, infrastructure, but, but your safety can be a little bit uh, lower. Okay, that's great. So I, I'm going to read all of the questions I've got so far, because we're right at the 20 minute, and I want you guys to couple together and choose which one you most want to answer. Okay, so one is, who do the experts think is ultimately responsible for individual safety in the cyberspace? Law, politicians, individuals, local community, presumably some mix of those as we've just been talking about. Uh, loved the story about, that, that was from, sorry, uh, Ava Turner. And from Andre uh, Martianek, uh, loved the story about letting hackers to go on the server. However, to the subject, there are now many security companies using AI to detect the presence of hackers actors presence on the network. However, from the human is still the weakest link in the chain. There's a great service there you can uh, find if you have an email address uh, and you know, and he, he talks about, I have been found. Um, and then we have a question from Premios Pella. What are speakers thoughts on censorship of social media and information dissemination? And yeah, that kind of goes hand in hand with the uh, repressing uh, uh, on, you know, on unpolite uh, stuff that was mentioned earlier by Luis. Um, and then Oscar Kelly says, I work in managing the tech and security of a large church. Over the last year, we've been forced to meet over Zoom for many reasons, as you can imagine, looking after online safety and security of a whole congregation can be tricky. Do you have advice for us? And yeah, maybe I'll stop there because there's another one, but it came in late and I've already given you guys a lot to remember. So if you could each kind of try to pick pick one maybe and, and answer, but of course I'm not gonna stop you from, uh, from uh, in fact, I think we should be able to get two rounds. Um, do you wanna go in the same order or reverse order for a change? Or poor Luis, I'll have Luis go first. <laughs> yeah. I got excited about the censorship question, uh, number okay. three. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, this is a, I, I think it, uh, well, timely and, and very appropriate. It also gives a, a, a little bit of, uh, of opportunity to elaborate more on, on the topic. Um, so, you know, my personal issue, and I think something that's, uh, uh, you know, floating in, 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 the, in the community that's developing AI technologies that are based on, on, on language uh, is, um, uh, I, sh I should probably give a little bit of context of where we stand at the moment. So you probably, uh, you, you may have seen in journals and newspapers that there are uh, big tech, uh, tech companies um, um, pushing the boundaries of uh, conversational uh, uh, AI models and uh, artificial intelligence systems that are able to generate text, uh, generate text uh, very faithfully, uh, which looks uh, uh, very much like human text uh, great syntax, uh, appropriate grammar, semantically correct, 
um, but often uh, they uh, they don't uh, uh, they aren't they aren't able well first of all to follow a conversation um, uh, in the same way that we that we do um, and they fail dramatically to uh, uh, reason even uh, you know very at a very shallow level for space time uh, environment so this is something that we're very far away from solving um, but it is actually possible to generate text that looks good enough to look like a Reddit post or a tweet or a LinkedIn profile. Uh, you may have seen issues with uh, uh, deep fakes as well, right? Generating faces that for, for people that doesn't exist. Um, so the uh, issue with uh, overflow of information is actually an issue that generates a sort of censorship, which is very far away from you know having a governmental uh, figure that's uh, putting the thumb on dissidents or on uh, uncomfortable information, because this can be actually um, uh, diluted away uh, in different ways, uh, ways that are very much more difficult to to try to trace back. Um, I, this is really interesting, but you also mentioned it in your talk. I think the question is also about, I think we all have had the experience, well, I don't know, I have, of uh, you know, posting something to Facebook that was interpreted as spam or offensive, and you really cannot figure it out. I'm an AI expert. I'm like, what is the problem with this right. post? You know? right. um, and, you, and actually, it's really funny. You can see like the left and the right of some of the, some of the groups I'm in, where they're saying, well, there's one thing we all agree with. We don't like to not be able to post stuff with the, the randomness. Yeah, uh, but anyway, I, I, I think I've, I shouldn't have pushed that right back to you because we, we were trying to get around the rest of the group too. But, of course, but... of course, feel free to, to move around, yeah. Okay. Uh, does anyone else want to say anything about any of the other questions or do you need me to remind you of them? Um, can, I, I think I'll group together uh, Eva Turner's question about who is responsible for every person's security and, and Oscar's question around how what advice I would give to somebody who manages a security in a in an, in a large organization um because i think this sort of really you know is a question that in the estonian government we discuss a lot you know we we, we have a very advanced e-society but but this also means that we we face threats like no other government out there you know we, we are offering services and we need to be exceptionally secure to offer e-voting to our people we need to be very sure that we know what we're doing is correct and and sort of the, the sort of guiding thought behind our national approach has been that everyone has their own role to play. So as, as citizens, as a sort of regular human beings, user, users of social media, users of government services, we have our own responsibilities to our own devices, for example, that we, we keep the malware free, we, we have an updated antivirus. This is what we do on the human level. But then sort of in our work roles, in our sort of community roles, we, we play sort of different um, you know, we have to take responsibility for what we do. So in, in, a, in a workplace, there are certain things that we can do and that every employer has a duty to, to help their staff navigate cybersecurity issues. As sort of a government, we have a certain duty to our people that we do what is right. Um, but when we are in educational institutions, we need to make sure that people leaving, um, leaving education know the basics of cybersecurity and they know how it applies to, to what they are doing. And so, so this sort of mixture of roles and shared responsibility and all of this together is the only way to actually um, achieve any sort of cybersecurity going forward is that if everyone knows their role and knows what they can do. So it's a level of education and awareness that has to come with it. Um, yeah. Great. 
Yes, do you have any? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, there was uh, one uh, one question about or, or note about AI that detects hackers. So uh, I think that AI that hack, uh, detects hack, hacker attacks is uh, certainly a good technology. But if I will uh, go back to my first uh, to the first part of my speech, uh, even AI won't help if people make stupid mistakes. Uh, simplify their work and uh, break security rules. So, so I understand that technology is great and technology can, can help. Uh, but in most cases, uh, I think the, the responsible responsibility is on the uh, humans who uh, implement and who, who use these technologies. Even it is uh, email or special technology which detects hackers uh, on on the servers. Okay, great. All right, so, um, well, I only have one more question, and it, but it's really interesting, and I'm gonna try to pricey it a little bit. The question's from Maya. So how, how can we find the balance between empowering individuals to do their most, uh, such as using different passwords and taking caution when someone asks about their data and cybersecuritization? And then she's referencing now the, the Copenhagen School of Thought, the theory of painting uh, an existential threat and then offering solutions. Uh, which has been found to alienate and take away agency. So, so basically, the problem here is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know it's, that portraying the world as it is might uh, uh, reduce people's willingness to, to uh, you know, to eliminate their freedom of thought and and uh, and their willingness to to create and to take risks. So, as in the cyber world is full of threats painted too great to deal with by regular Joes. And instead, in the playground for experts, governmental regulation, and big tech. So, how do we motivate people less digitally savvy to get into it and take charge? It's a it's a great question, and I think if I if I um, remember my time at university well and sort of the, the the teachings of the Copenhagen School, I think with sort of as it was many other security domains, particularly on this, we need to go through a process of desecuritization. That it, that it becomes less of an sort of, that people feel less of this sort of existential threat around this issue. But it's it's just part of your, your daily life, just as, you know, gum disease can kill you, but you will brush your teeth and you will not panic about it. And, and sort of sort of basic cybersecurity is, is just the same. It's sort of your basic hygiene that you need to adapt to as you go through your, your, your daily life. And, and sort of, the, you know, the, the trust that everyone is play, doing their own part and, and playing their own role. Um, and then this is sort of, and, and governments need to earn that trust. We, we need to be stepping up our game and actually doing what our citizens expect us to do. Uh, but I think it's sort of most of the sort of when it comes to password uh, management and then sort of keeping their devices clean, it, it's, it almost has to become um, a normal part of life. And I think it, it does have to go through a desecuritization process to achieve that. Anybody else? Uh, so I'll ask another question because I had another question in reserve uh, if we had managed to have 20 minutes and you guys can decide whether you'd rather answer that or go back to one of these other questions or ask each other a question. <laughs> okay, so my, my question was, um, you know, so sometimes, uh, especially when I was sitting in Vienna in, in like 2009, I really wondered if we were already in some major cyber war and just nobody was telling us, you know, sometimes everything was throttled. And I know that sometimes that's just random and that somebody's just released, you know, like Apple has a new upgrade or something. But 
is do you think there's any chance that that uh, there's been a militarization of cyberspace and that might actually reduce the level of sort of ballistic conflict, or do you think that this that's like overly utopian thinking? Um, and, uh, do, do you have any sort of grand grand uh, theory of of uh, international relations and cybersecurity? I think it's 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 it was most focused focused to me. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that uh, the uh, the problem of of current uh, world is not only cybersecurity but the uh, complexity of uh, technology, because the current world uh, uh, came with uh, big demand for uh, IT educated uh, people. And uh, there is uh, you you can't change it within one one generation uh, to to have uh, uh, to to multiply number of uh, uh, well educated uh, IT uh, IT uh, people IT IT guys. Uh, so uh, until the demand of uh, uh, IT uh, staff uh, will not be. Uh, will will not be uh, uh, filled by by uh, well educated IT people. Uh, there is still space for any risk, any threats uh, in the cybersecurity, but but in common uh, common IT because sometimes we feel it like a cyber attack, uh, maybe on the uh, on, on uh, international cyber attack, but but still it is uh, based on uh, small. Uh, mistakes uh, and incidents, which are which were which were combined in a very complex world. Uh, so, uh, from my perspective, uh, in case that uh, uh, people will decide to use less technology, even I am IT guy, uh, the risk of uh, cyber security or cyber wars or or international cyber attacks and so on uh, will be much lower than in case that we will uh, multiply number of technologies and applications we are using uh, and we will not have uh, uh, equal staff who will care about it does it answer partially your question that, that was a good answer um i also have a question from one of the panelists you guys ask each other your questions please <laughs> i have a question for louis maybe it was an issue we were tackling when when i was in government and estonian is a very small language there's only one million speakers and we are faced with the issue that we know very well that going forward language technology and and sort of the the fact that computers should recognize different languages becomes more and more important but there is no or very little private sector incentive to develop this technology for one million speakers so what can the estonian government do to keep our language alive in sort of the age of the computer mm, that's a, a a great a great question and i think this is a question that of course is probably a uh, in, in the heads of many speakers of what we call under-resourced languages. Um, what, uh, from, so one um, relatively simple answer uh, would be to encourage governments to uh, educate linguistically um, the, the population of the country and see if, uh, if uh, it is, it's possible to, uh, for people to engage more in the development of, uh, of uh, linguistic resources. I can give you, for example, the, example, uh, the case of Wikipedia. 
Um, as you know, Wikipedia has uh, uh, versions in many different languages, and you, we can check uh, the ratio of activity of Wikipedia per language uh, by a number of, of uh, speakers of that language. And if you look at that ranking, actually, it turns out that the Catalan Wikipedia is in top three in the world. Uh, of course, this, sh this uh, shows that there is a lot of uh, uh, awareness by the Catalan people of the importance of the language. Of course, there are political issues that come into play. Um, but the bottom line is that, uh, in general, the Catalan speaker is, on average, more engaged to keep the Wikipedia in Catalan updated, to uh, write good quality content. And this uh, also has an effect on the development of language technologies for the Catalan language because those models, those AI systems are trained, for example, on web text, which includes Wikipedia. So a good Wikipedia uh, will, will always uh, benefit the development of the technologies. And you can take this example and extrapolate to many other use cases. That's great. Um, I, I note that we have uh, five minutes left. And uh, so I, I actually think I should ask our host, uh, is there time for like a, a final statement by each of the panelists? Or do you want to sort of take over and, uh, and say something to our audience? Oh, I think that's perfect. We can keep, you know, if there's some last question uh, from the audience uh, or there are some, some comments from our speakers, uh, that, that's fine as a wrapping up the discussion would be great. There is one late question that's just popped up. Do you see any change of trends in cyberspace over the last 12 to 18 months during the pandemic, lockdowns, et cetera? So I give you each the choice. You have like a minute each. You can answer that question or say something else. Go ahead. And I think this time it's usually first to go first. Yeah, I, I think that of, of course there was a big change because because uh, many uh, many people start to use uh, uh, more technologies, and of course there was uh, many new uh, new new users who didn't use it before. So it was it was uh, always a great space for any attacks or any any threats uh, made on 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 the internet so so of course everybody if you have less experienced users you have big chance uh, to uh, to catch them or or, or to to get uh, some kind of attack to them okay and uh luis do you have anything you want to say uh, also in parting mm -hmm. uh yeah uh, thanks um well on on this uh, just uh, uh a comment that uh, it seems that uh, people today are scrutinizing much more the quality of the information they access uh, than uh, we used to uh, some time ago, uh, which I think is, is good. And it's also a reflection of the fact that there's a lot of uh, uh, well un uh, untrue information floating around. So it's a matter of uh, education and, um, and, and reflection on the importance of quality information on, in, online, in online media. Okay, great. And I will give uh, Carolina the last uh, sentence before I thank our hosts. Thank you. I think there's, there's certainly sort of a lot of attacks now trickling through from the work domain to people's personal lives. But I think sort of a, a very important change is that we are now seeing more children online. They were interacting with sort of cyberspace in a completely different way to what we are used to. With, with sort of their schooling switching to online, them suddenly being exposed to a completely different kind of way of, of going about their life. And I think that was a, a perhaps one of the, the biggest changes you know, over the last 18 months when it comes to the internet. 
that might make us safer actually because <laughs> they're smart <laughs> anyway uh but no that's a huge concern i hadn't thought about that so much not being a parent okay well i need to thank uh petra pavel and pella so i guess checks all their names i'll start with p <laughs> and uh and uh i don't and i'll hand over again to pella Great. Uh, so, well, let me just wrap it up, uh, saying it's such a vast and interesting topic. I'm sure we can continue discussing it for quite a while. I think in the real world, not the virtual world, we would now break for a glass of wine or beer and continue our chatting. So, unfortunately, uh, please grab that the glass at, at home or beer, your, your preference would be. But let me just uh, conclude by really thanking uh, to our uh, distinguished panel panelists, uh, Carolina, Iri, and Luis. And of course, I would really like to thank uh, Joanna. I hope you enjoyed the chairing that the panel, as you mentioned, you didn't have that many opportunities, but it was perfect. You kept us on track in terms of the time uh, and the topics of Thank you very, very much. And also thank you to all of you who died in today uh, to join us for the discussion. And the last, uh, I would like to uh, invite you for the fifth edition of the AI Science Cafe, which will take place on October 21st. And the topic would be AI and its impact on, on CEDAR and, and the relation with the, the performing arts. So we have something to look forward to as well. Cool. So thank you again. Have a wonderful evening and hope to, to see you in London in person. Thank you.